0: Can I ask you to reach for a Bible, please, and turn to page 856, page 856. Um, Over the last couple of Sunday evenings, uh, Mark and Samuel uh, took us into the start of Luke's Gospel, and we're picking up where they left off. Uh, Mark, uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we turn to it together. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And we pray, our Father, that we would know you as the great Lord, the great Savior, and therefore we, like Mary, would magnify you and rejoice in you this morning. Please work in us by your spirit to help us to understand your word and to receive it as a word to us from Almighty God himself, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read them from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. A bit of help if you might keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline of the sermon as there usually is on the back of the notice sheet that you were given as you came in. And um, this is a, a brilliant passage, I think, for us on Christmas Eve. I don't know what your memory of nativity plays and things like That was, a friend told me once, the highlight of his acting career was when he played the part of a tree uh, in a nativity play. Another friend told me of driving for hours to see his son play the part of a lamppost in a school play. I'm not sure I see the lamppost anywhere in the original story. I asked, was it a particularly special lamppost? Did it talk? Did it dance? No, he was just a lamppost, I was told, uh, school nativity plays are very sweet, aren't they? They're great fun. Uh, They do, they sometimes, as we know, sometimes they portray a version of the Christmas story that's maybe at best sanitized, at worst, even a tiny bit misleading. Mary's going to teach us the true meaning of Christmas, the Christmas baby this morning, and we'll see that her message is as subversive as it is tender and as chilling as it is joyful. Incredible as it sounds, she says that the, the little bundle of cells that was growing in her womb would one day shape the eternal destiny of every one of us. Let me back up for a bit and say, um, if you haven't been with us the last couple of Sunday evenings, Luke set out, as you'll see if you flick back to chapter one and um, verse two, to write an authoritative and Well researched and carefully ordered theological history of the life of Jesus. A book that's both an accurate record of his life historically and a divinely inspired interpretation of it. And so far in chapter one, we've had two panels. Uh, The first foretold the birth of John the Baptist, and it climaxed in Zechariah's wrong response to God's word in verse 20. Then the second foretold the birth of Jesus and climaxed in Mary's right response in verse 38. And to put it simply, Zechariah didn't believe what God was saying, and Mary did. And Luke is therefore telling us this morning, not just the the facts of the first Christmas, but also about the one who authored them, and the way that we should respond to them. His aim is for us to grow in confidence in the truth of the Christian faith and to live it out more confidently ourselves. And you'll see that reflected in our points today. The first point about Mary, uh, the model of godly gratitude and joy. And I don't know what you make of this little incident. Curious, isn't it? In uh, verses 39 to 45, Mary's told about Elizabeth's pregnancy. So she dashes off to see her when she gets there. Verse 41 says that the berry in Elizabeth's womb, uh, John the Baptist, leapt for joy. And we might think, well, that's very sweet. It's just a little coincidence. But we were given a clue up in verse 15 when we were told that this baby John, even while he was in the womb, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just a coincidence, we're being told that this is a, a divinely inspired reaction to a divinely conceived child. Um, Elizabeth herself confirms that she too is filled with the Spirit and then she says to Mary, verse 42, blessed are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb, but it's verse forty three that blows my mind. you see it there? Elizabeth asks, "Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And what stands out is the the name that she gives to Jesus in that little sentence. He's, he's only just been conceived, but she calls the baby in Mary's womb her Lord. Now that word Lord doesn't um, always have divine connotations, it can just mean something like master, but it's been used 10 times already in Luke 1 and on every occasion it's referred to God and so that's what's going on here. It is a staggering claim about the little fetus in Mary's womb. Uh, We're tidying something away recently, I was trying to stuff an enormous duvet into a tiny bag and at first I thought there's no way it's going to fit in but you know as all of the air comes out eventually it squeezes into this little sack we're being told somehow the the Lord the one who's the creator of everything the eternal son condescended to be to be crumpled down so much that he could fit into a package initially the, the size of a peppercorn and then grow and then grow, and then grow some more. So the the infinite mind that conceived the plan of salvation, the the mighty hands that flung stars into space, the the radiant eyes that searched the thoughts of every human heart, all of it compressed, crumpled down into a womb. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls it the grand miracle. The creator entering creation, the eternal entering time, and God becoming a baby. It's a mystery, it's a miracle, it is a marvel, all at the same time. And here in Luke 1, it's an occasion for humility and joy. So in verse 46, Mary's joy is obvious. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And her whole song here is saturated with scripture. Virtually every word echoes some part of the Old Testament. King David in Psalm 35 had said, My soul will rejoice in the Lord and exult in his salvation. In Psalm 34, he encouraged others, Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And Mary's joining in his choir. But her response is especially reminiscent of the passage we had read from 1 Samuel by Louise earlier, of another woman to whom God gave a child. As Hannah looked forward to the coming of God's Messiah, her heart rejoiced, we're told in the Lord. She delighted in his deliverance. And now as Mary knows that God's promised Messiah has finally come, she too responds with joy. There was so so much about her situation, when you think about it, that was very perilous. It was an unmarried, pregnant teenager, but still she's full of joy and praise because she knows that she will soon give birth to the Savior. The shepherds will respond in the same way. They're told good news of great joy for all people. They go home glorifying and praising God. And all over the world this morning, you will find Christians still, Now, whether they're on holiday and sunning it up in the Galapagos Islands, if, that's what's, if it's sunny at this time of year over there, or they're living in terrible conflict in Gaza, or they're living in pain and emotional turmoil in Glasgow, you will find that Christians this morning and tomorrow around the world are rejoicing with a joy that is unshakable because of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Notice, too, that Mary's response is humble. The Lord, she says, has looked on the humblest state of my, of his servant. You can't imagine Mary ever standing on ceremony. Um, she'd never launch her own clothing line or try and appear on the cover of a magazine. There'd be no, well, I'm the mother of the Lord, don't you? No, she just... You can imagine the horror she would feel if people bowed humbly before her or got down on their knees before her she knows that she's blessed to be entrusted with this enormous privilege of giving birth to the son of the most high but she knows that there's nothing very special about her so there's no self-exaltation there's just humble reverence towards God verse 49 he who is mighty has done great things for me Holy is her name. So Mary knows her God. She knows that he's mighty, like he revealed in the Exodus. She knows that he's holy, like he revealed to Isaiah. And she knows that his mercy is for those who fear him. So here we see is a woman who's been, young woman who's been devoting herself to the knowledge of God. She's steeped in the scriptures. But it's not just head knowledge, Here is a a personal and heartfelt response. You see it in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Because the truths that she knows about God have prompted her to respond in this joyful, humble, reverent, personal praise and thanksgiving. who he is. There's nothing that suggests that Mary was herself without sin, but she's been presented to us as as a model, a humble sinner who rejoices in God, her Savior. So we have to hold Mary in her proper place. She knew great blessing, but she would want us to know that there is an even greater blessing than she was enjoying why don't you just flick ahead with me, please, to page 870, Luke chapter 11. There's a little verse here that I think will take our breath away when we compare it with what we've just been thinking about. So Luke chapter 11, page 870, and verse 27. Jesus is teaching the crowds, and a woman cries out, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you were nursed. And we think, well, yes. But look at Jesus' reply. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So if we'd been um, able to interview Mary in her old age, uh, it would have been wonderful, wouldn't it? We could have asked her to tell us all of her memories of Jesus' childhood, and like any mum, she'd have had many. Wouldn't it be great if she could have whipped out her phone and showed us all the pictures and all of the videos that she'd taken when he was a little boy? To know that the Son of God that intimately was a unique privilege and blessing. But if we'd asked her, what was your greatest blessing? She wouldn't have talked about God crumpling himself into her womb. She would have talked about the blessings that poured into her life when her son later died on the cross for her and for her salvation. She talk about the daily blessing of hearing and obeying God's word. And the wonder for me of this first point is that if we were to follow Mary's example of joyful, humble, reverent, personal faith, so too we share in that greatest of all blessings. We can eat our Christmas lunch on our own or with others And know that our sins have been forgiven, to know that we've been adopted into God's family, to know that we've been given eternal peace and security and hope in Christ. That is a very good reason to be celebrating this Christmas. But we need to move on from Mary's example to her God. It's our second major heading God, the mighty, merciful, and faithful Lord. Because in verse 50, the tone changes a little bit. Mary stops speaking about her own experience of God and she starts speaking directly about what he is like. Uh, Here's a slightly gratuitous story for Christmas. Um, Told of a, a child in an art class at school, the teacher came over, asked what she was drawing. She said, I'm drawing God. And the the teacher said, well, you, you can't because nobody knows what God looks like, to which the little girl replied, well, they will when I've finished because now it will be revealed. Many think they know what God is like. I wonder what picture you have of him and how it compares to the three adjectives that summarize. I put on the sheet, what Mary says about his true identity. First, you may not have thought you'd hear this uh, on Christmas Eve, but he's mighty because he scatters the proud. Verse 51, he's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he's sent away empty. Um, The verbs are all in the past tense. You can call them a a prophetic past, I think, because although they refer to something that will only happen in the future when Jesus comes again, it's so certain that it's going to happen that he puts it in the the past like it's already done. And God is not some out-of-date weakling who's losing his grip on the world. He is mighty and all-powerful. And the, the talk of human thrones in verse fifty-two, I guess, immediately makes us think of kings and presidents and generals and prime ministers. But we know that the power brokers of today are as likely to sit in a boardroom as a parliament. Their opinion formers, their media pundits, their religious leaders. And in verse fifty-one, the people in the view are those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And you'll see that broadens the application a bit, doesn't it? Because you you don't need to be a professor or a prime minister to be proud. Pride and arrogance are funny things. They're easier to spot in other people than in ourselves. And they're not all that easy to define. But one of the, the clearest examples in the Bible is of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And there's a time when he's walking around on the roof of one of his palaces. And he says... himself as much as anyone else as far as we can tell, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty I suppose the equivalent would be someone in St. Andrews as they're enjoying their Christmas lunch, look at my wonderful family and my lovely children and my beautiful home and my great career and my fine reputation that I have built for myself and maybe pride is a particular danger of the successful because money and and social status can feed that sense of security and independence that makes us feel like we don't need God but arrogance we know is definitely not the sole possession of the wealthy and successful you can find it on a housing scheme in a schoolyard as much as in a five-star hotel in a Savile Row suit. The essence is, what am I doing with God's Son, Jesus? How am I responding to his right to rule my life? Am I resisting it proudly, or am I surrendering to it? It isn't a side of the Christmas story we often think about, but it is staggering. It is that tiny one in Mary's womb would grow up to be the judge of all of the living and the dead. And he will scatter the proud. Which is why I'm so grateful at Christmas that Mary didn't stop there. She knows that God isn't just the God of sovereign might, but also of tender mercy and that he loves to exalt the humble. It's our second little subheading there. You'll see it in verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation. In verse fifty-two, the Lord has exalted those of humble estate. In verse fifty-three, He has filled the hungry with good things. When Mary speaks of the humble, she's not—it's not a social description of people from a humble background, but a, a spiritual description of those who are humble before God, just like Mary herself, up in verse forty-eight. Uh, The same is true of the hungry in verse 53 and Psalm 107. Describe the hungry and thirsty as those who cry to the Lord in complete dependence upon him. And then in his mercy they're redeemed and filled. And the point is that it doesn't matter what kind of social background I come from. If I cry to the Lord in repentance and faith, then in mercy... The Lord will delight to reach down to me and to exalt me forevermore. It's a truth about God that is the only source of real and lasting security in life. We sometimes sing that hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The only source of real joy in life. We sing joy to the world, the Lord is come. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. It's the only source of real peace. The angel sang, Glory to God in the highest, and peace to those upon whom his favor rests. And I was thinking about how wonderfully inclusive and generous and gracious this is because you know that the the best exam marks in life always go to the the most intelligent Uh, the most lavish presents go to the most wealthy the top honors and esteem go to the most successful and worthy but our merciful lord is pleased to pour out his love and grace upon even the least deserving It doesn't matter how much money we've got. It doesn't matter how many degrees we've got. It doesn't matter how successful we've been, how much of a handle we've got on life at the moment. You could be a complete moral, social, and spiritual outcast. But if I turn back to him, well, then you will know the eternal tenderness of his love. That is an incredible thing. One final thought as we close. God is mighty, He's merciful, and He's faithful. Just at the end of Mary's song, verse 54, He's helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. And this ultimately is the, the bedrock of Mary's confidence. How could she have so much certainty? in her song about the ultimate victory of God, the ultimate vindication of his people. And I take it's because as she looked at the bump in Elizabeth's tummy and as she thought about the the baby growing in her own, she was reminded that when God says he's going to do something, he always does it. And that not one of his promises ever falls to the ground. If Elizabeth's pregnancy had been unlikely because of her age, Mary's had been impossible, but now these two women stood there with the the proof of the power and the reliability of God's word literally growing inside them, and they could be sure that he will certainly fulfill all of his other promises as well, and the whole aim of Luke is to give his readers ever greater certainty about the good news of Jesus, that the Christmas story, the gospel, is not some myth or fireside tale we pass on to our children because we, we get sentimental and nostalgic at Christmas. We watch Home Alone and then we talk about Jesus. It's just objective fact. We just have to look at history, at the person of Jesus himself, at the salvation he won as he died on the cross, supremely at his own resurrection. And we're reminded, when we think of all of the promises that God has already fulfilled in Christ, we can be certain he'll bring all of his work to completion. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Because he will reign forevermore. And that certainty should feed our faith this Christmas. It should make us more like Mary. Humble, reverent, and joyful before our merciful, mighty, and faithful Lord. Let's pray together. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so, Almighty God, as we're reminded of who you are and the great work that you did in grace as the Lord Jesus came, the eternal Son crumpled into a womb, we want to thank you and to praise you for that first Christmas. And we want to praise you that all who humble themselves before you can know your tender mercy and your peace and security in you, even when everything else falls apart, that you are a bedrock upon whom we can stand now and forever. So fill our hearts with humble, reverent faith and praise this Christmas we ask. And give us joy in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray it for his name's sake. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, if we're able, as we play. one last.